Well, welcome to another new week of broadcast here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and I hope you had a nice weekend. I um, hope you're already getting ready for, my goodness, school year's already kicking around, and uh, vacation time's kind of winding down, and boy, it's just kind of a uh, an interesting time. <laughs> it stays busy for a lot of folks. Um, I had the privilege uh, this past weekend of getting to see uh, well, some things that are very important to me, <laughs> and I'm very grateful to share them with you. Um, last Thursday and Friday, I had the privilege of being in Dallas, Texas area uh, for some recording that was scheduled to happen uh, for the television program called The Chosen. And uh, we've had uh, Dallas Jenkins and uh, some of the musicians who've been involved in The Chosen and Jerry Jenkins, uh, Dallas's dad, who's uh, the author of the two novels of The Chosen series. Uh, that have been put out so far. Season three is in uh, uh, is in production right now, and I can honestly say that they're in uh, was a Mondolithian, uh, Texas or whatever, just outside of Dallas. They've taken over a compound there where the, not one of those compounds, but it was a ministry training center that kind of went sideways during COVID, and so they've rented it out and transformed it into basically Jerusalem, Judea, Rome, you know, the whole shot. They're shooting it there, so uh, we will have uh, audio and video of uh, my excursion there uh, coming up in the next few days at myhopenow.com and thebottomlineshow.com, rogermarsh.com. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that if you're a fan of The Chosen. If you haven't seen The Chosen, I believe you can binge season one and season two right now. Uh, Season three is moving a little bit slower. And uh, as a result, um, I think they've got a couple of episodes in the can, as they say, but uh, nothing is completely done yet. But because I was in that area, I also had a chance to swing through the Houston area on my way home and stop by and visit the grandson and uh, see his brand new bedroom and uh, have a little sleepover with him. Oh, of course, Emily and Brian were there too, but uh, it was kind of <laughs> kind of nice to have that time. So uh, just getting back in the saddle here, and I was thinking in terms of, uh, you know, the 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 Jenkins story. When Jerry B. Jenkins was on with me a little over a month ago talking about The Chosen, one of the things we did talk about was the fact that he was very fortunate since he had um, had, had a very, very successful writing career. Uh, it started when he was very young as a sports writer and then moved into writing novels and, um, and then writing biographies and became known as a Christian biographer to the point where he had biographies lined up where he was either writing the biography for someone or writing an autobiography as what we would call a ghostwriter. And uh, I think he did Billy Graham and a bunch of other people. He, when the Left Behind series came his way, Tim LaHaye had this idea for a series that basically would be a novel based on the book of Revelation. And he and Jerry got involved in it. Tyndale House picked it up. And um, they, Jerry said, I realized that I was about, I don't know, 10, 12 chapters into it where I thought, I'm still in chapter one, about 12 chapters of the novel. I'm still in chapter one. There's no way I can do this in just one book. So we're going to have to make this a to be continued. And by the time book one came out, book two was in production and the it just caught like wildfire. They wound up doing, I think, 14 or 15 books in the series, including prequels and sequels. And they sold 62 million copies remarkable even if you take the math the 62 million divided by you know whatever is 14 15 that's still three to four million copies per book that's remarkable for christian fiction best-selling series of all time and then his uh his son dallas comes along and is working on a variety of different projects and uh, i actually was cleaning out some old email the other day and um, came across an email that i sent to dallas jenkins right after he was on the bottom line show as part of this big media push for his movie called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. 
And it's a very clever, sweet movie about a guy who is a marginal success in the TV movie industry, comes from a relatively small town, and then he has a situation happen. It's a DUI or something like that. And so his agent decides that the best thing for him to rehab his public relations campaign is to go back home to his hometown and do some volunteer work at the local church. And so he shows up at the church and turns out they're doing the Christmas pageant and he winds up getting a part in it. And it's just, it's a very delightful movie about how he rediscovers his roots, his faith. Uh, It's very clever. The movie came out and opened to a resounding thud. All directionable points for Dallas Jenkins were heading in the direction of go, 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 let's make this happen. And, um, and within, you know, in the social media world, it opened like in April of uh, 2017. And he said within a couple of hours, the, the, the social media buzz was so bad for this film that all the offers that he had lined up and was just, I'm going to choose between this one or that one or this one or that one, uh, all basically wound up becoming, sorry, we'll, we'll get back to you. And he had nothing, just literally nothing. And so he took some freelance projects, wound up doing something he felt very strongly about, which was a, uh, uh, a story of the telling of the uh, Christmas story from the perspective of the shepherds. And he did it just as a really nicely done production for his church, just kind of as a gift. And someone saw it and thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if we did this for the entire life of Christ? They started getting their own funding. And by 2019, they had the early episodes of The Chosen ready to go. And then they started binging it during the pandemic when everybody was at home, locked up and watching nothing but Netflix and, you know, playing board games. And it took off from there. It's the most successful um, television program about the life of Christ in history. History, It has 400 and something download streams. It's really incredible. And Jerry mentioned something about the father-son aspect of this and that I appreciated. He said, you know, I, when, when the Left Behind series happened, Jerry was 43 years old. And he said, you know, at that point I had so much work lined up and we were, you know, I'd kind of retired from the day-to-day life of uh, the writing I was doing for Christianity Today or wherever it was. And I was just going to write biographies and novels the rest of my life. And I was pretty much financially set. And then this happened and it just exploded and my whole world changed. And he said, Dallas was 43 years old when The Chosen hit. And he lived through what it was like for Left Behind and all the big hype and hoopla regarding the project. And so it's like God prepared him when he was younger to see what it would be like when it happened when he was older. And uh, I I like that, uh, him talking about what it was like for him to take a risk doing this and at the same time to, uh, you know, be able to enjoy the rewards. And it got me thinking. I started thinking, thank you for listening to this long diatribe, this preamble to get into this segment. It got me thinking. What is it about fathers in particular that encourage us to engage in risk-taking? Now, this is not to take anything away from moms. I know a lot of families where mom is very adventurous. I mean, my wife, are you kidding? She's the one who's like, hey, you want to go ziplining? You want to go jump out of an airplane? And I'm the one who goes, babe, you know, I got issues with my, uh, you know, (laughs) vertigo and stuff like that, which I actually do. I mean, it was kind of embarrassing when I was a kid. Uh, Sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes an elevator ride would catch me the wrong way. There's video somewhere around here. In the eighth grade, it was part of a movie-making summer school class, and there's this one part where we were doing just anything just to get it on camera. And we were over at a park in Tustin, and there were two of us sitting on the swings just where our legs are kind of crossed and people are sitting on top of us. And we start swinging back and forth. And if you look very closely at the camera, I look like I'm about to get sick. 
I'm just, <laughs> that I'm not that adventurous daredevil. Lisa totally is in our family. But at the same time, though, my risk taking for my kids is the give it a shot. Go ahead and take a jump. You know, do do, do what you possibly can. Whenever we're with the grandkids, Isaac loves doing the flip and run and skip and you know whatever. Uh, the first thing he'll say is race me. You know, let, let's go. Let's get involved. And uh, I, I watch watching Sephora now too. Our granddaughter's eighteen months old. She is learning how to climb up and down, you know, climb up onto something, climb down off of something safely. She can get up and down on the beds now. And she was trying to get on our big pit couch that we have out in the great room a couple weekends ago. And she'd get both arms up on the pillows and then one leg is pushing the right leg usually. And she's trying to swing the left leg around and it's not quite there yet. You know, she, but she was not whining. She wasn't complaining. She was willing to take that risk. And it, it got me thinking, is it, I mean, fortunately for Zipporah, she's got a mom and a dad who both are athletes and you know, they like to, you know, they, they think a healthy amount of risk is, is good for a child. But I have to wonder, has this generation of parents gotten so overprotective with kids that it's actually hurting us as a society? And, and here's what, hear me out on this one. We've got so many kids who are kind of cocooned and wrapped. You know, we joke about the bubble wrap parents. They don't want anything bad to happen to their kids. But you see this kind of increase in the amount of bullying and, you know, bad mouthing and disregard for human life and human decency in the social media era, where more and more people can be super brave and super, you know, whoever they want to be um, behind a computer. And then you get in real life and, and you find out that they're either belligerent and just kind of run past you or they're cowardly and, and don't want to engage. Why is it that we see that our society has gotten more bully-centric, more complaining-centric, more victim-centric? On the other side of this break, I want to take a look at a Canadian study that was published recently that actually makes the, uh, the, the, the prediction that kids who engage in risky play when they're younger are actually more resilient, more determined, more better with outgoing social skills, and they're actually safer. Risky play makes kids safer. Is that possible? Well, let's take a look at the study on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Get your money out of a traditional 401k or IRA now before the current administration raises taxes even higher. Newsflash. The current administration wants to raise your taxes. That's all they've been talking about is tax increases this year, next year, and the year after. Why? Well, we have an enormous debt of $30 trillion. And so it has to be paid for somehow. And they've got to go after where they can get the money. And one of the ways they're going after it is IRAs and 401ks. And the IRS and the government are working on ways to make your 401ks and your IRAs more of a tax burden to you, which creates revenue for them. That's why we call your 401k and your IRA retirement plans ticking time bombs, because these things are going to go off. Protect your nest egg from a huge tax bill. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services how you can defuse your ticking tax time bomb, otherwise known as your 401k or IRA retirement plans. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're doing an analysis, balance, and clarity segment today here on The Bottom Line that leads to, remember, the ABCs lead to D and E, which is discernment, and then edification. Or if we need a little 
rap on the knuckles, exhortation. It's really very simple. We do the analysis, look at the data, see what it has to say. We get some balance on that data based on where we're getting it from. You know, is it all just from one public study or one media source? And then we get the clarity. And the clarity is, okay, so what does all of this data mean? You get data, which leads to information, which hopefully leads you to knowledge. But once you know how to apply the knowledge, now you've achieved wisdom, and that is the biblical goal. So the analysis here is with regard to a new study that has lots of other sub-studies in it. So that gives us the balance we're looking for. And asking the question, um, does risky play make kids safer? And overall, then the larger issue is, if the kids learn how to play at what we would consider risky things, then don't we build more resilient kids who are um, far more capable of success socially um, and spiritually at life. I remember years ago when John Eldridge was doing his uh, um, his masculine uh, ministry series and a lot of other guys, said, let's go climb a mountain, let's go hunt deer, you know, whatever it is. And it, it you know, it's kind of Bill McCartney and the Promise Keepers thing too. And I totally get it. Ken Harrison was just on with us from Promise Keepers a couple of weeks ago. New Canadian study is suggesting that parents who are trying so hard to quote unquote keep their kids safe may be overprotective to the point where they're eliminating opportunities for risky play outdoors and risky play can lead to increased physical activity, better social skills. But then here's the the three things that really got to me. Risk management assessment, resilience, and ultimately self-confidence. You know, it's interesting. The, and when you watch kids on the playground at school or at the park or just kind of playing in the neighborhood, you begin to wonder, how did we get away from that? I mean, when kids are engaging in risky play, and this is not a dad's right and mom's wrong type of thing. There are just as many moms I know who encourage their kids to climb a mountain, you know, ride a bike, you know, to, to do what you're going to do. But when kids are climbing trees, when they're playing capture the flag, when they're or playing tag. Oh my goodness, Isaac, the grandson right now is really into hide and seek and tag. Loves those games because they involve running, and they also involve somebody else being it. But it's interesting when we were playing. He was last time he was here a couple weeks ago before they moved to Texas, and uh, he was here, and I would he, I would hide or you know, he would hide, I would seek him, and then I would hide, and I you know, I'm pretty bad at hiding when you're being chased by a five year old, right? But then after he would be hiding and I would catch him, then he'd look at me and say, okay, Grandpa, now it's your turn to count. I said, wait, Isaac, I just counted. And he said, I know. And he'd smile. I'd say, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get away with that one. And he'd laugh and giggle. Where do you learn those when you're watching Miss Rachel on YouTube? You know, when you're watching and watching and watching videos and you're not doing. I mean, think about this for just a moment. The research link we have up at thebottomlineshow.com, and this is posted in a publication called uh, fatherly.com. One researcher wrote that his years as an injury prevention researcher left him aware that things can obviously go wrong when things get a little too dangerous. But he's also convinced that we may be keeping kids too safe and preventing those kids from exploring uncertainty could have unintended negative consequences. Uh, increased sedentary behavior, uh, anxiety, and phobia. Now think for just a moment what we heard during the pandemic 
Over and over and over again, what did we hear? We heard that the levels of stress are up, the levels of anxiety are up. Young people are attempting suicide at far greater rates than ever before. People are overdosing on alcohol and pills and things of that nature. Why? Because of anxiety and phobia. Now, what about the anxiety and phobia was getting to them? Well, if they did go out and exercise, the gym they went to was shut down. So did they stop exercising? Some people did. Some people, I mean, I know I got a lot more sedentary. When you're working from home almost, almost exclusively and you don't realize how much of your day between the church and the school I was working at and, and the, the, the radio station and everything, uh, walking and I'd get up and do a you know, two, three mile walk in the morning and then go to work and 10,000 steps a day, no problem. I keep a pedometer on me now because there are days, especially if I'm doing the show from the home studio, um, I might not walk a thousand steps in the entire day. It's very sedentary. And then it kind of leads you to the point where, do I want to go out? Do I not want to go out? And think about kids who are growing up. They're growing up with that. And then they had to listen to two years of, if you go outside, you might get hurt. Who was the the picture that I saw? Uh, It was Lloyd Austin, uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense. Big, tall African-American guy. You know, he's walking through. He's inspecting the, the, the ranks. And this is a guy who, all during COVID, it was jab, jab, booster, booster, face mask like the cloth kind, and a face shield everywhere he went. And just announced he got COVID for the second time. And I thought to myself, what kind of message did that give our kids when we were younger? Not that they should be reckless and careless and capricious with regard to the risk of the virus, but just to tell them, stay at home, mask up, and don't touch anybody. That wasn't a healthy way to go either. I mean, what happened to exercise is good, so let's exercise together as a family and keep our distance from other people. Oh, by the way, RIP, social distancing. Isn't that wonderful news from the CDC? We finally don't have to keep the stickers in the supermarkets and six feet apart and don't touch me and don't look at me. We can actually give each other hugs at church and not have to worry about the government saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to shut you down. Praise the Lord. It's interesting to see how play, especially risky play, helps young people. Don't miss this part of the report. When kids are given the opportunity and the mental and physical space to figure out appropriate risk levels for themselves through play, they then have the opportunity to kind of test their own limits, see what they're quote-unquote made of, And these are lessons that aren't just valuable on the schoolyard, they're valuable in life. For some kids, they want the exhilaration and they, well, this is going to go and this is great. For other kids, hey, maybe that swing does go a little too high. (laughs) Maybe that, uh, I don't want to climb up four flights of stairs to get to the top of the slide. Maybe three is good enough for me. But again, this is all risk assessment. These are all things that kids need to learn. And we're robbing them of that. We're taking away that playground equipment because it's too dangerous. You know, I didn't realize this when I was a kid. Maybe you didn't either. All those crazy things like the spider and the, uh, you know, the uh, teeter-totter and the, uh, what's the, the merry-go-round, all those different things. That, the monkey bars. Can you still say monkey bars in this culture? <laughs> I hope so. All those things were designed to exercise certain parts of your body. 
to keep you moving. So you'd go out for 10 minutes at snack or recess or whatever it was, and you go out there and, man, when I was in first grade, boy, I could still feel the calluses and the blisters. It was the monkey bars. That was just, we fought for those things. Who could skip two? Who can skip three? All these little red puckered blisters on your hands. Loved it. Our granddaughter Riley was out visiting us a couple of years ago from Michigan. She's a tall, lanky, skinny something. And she went, we took her to a park and they had monkey bars and she looked at them. She was fascinated. Now she was probably eight or nine at the time. And we had to pick her up and put her on them to where she'd get them. And she thought, what do I do? And I thought to myself, man, when I was in kindergarten, I was like, if I could reach, if I could just reach, make it from one to the other, that was the upper body development. And she had no concept because she'd never seen them before. It's amazing what can happen with risky play and how it helps. Now, do you have to worry about injury? Of course you do. I mean, but the risk, take the, it's a Canadian study. There's never been a safer time to be a child in Canada. They say the likelihood of dying from an injury is, is 0.59%. The leading causes of death in Canada are car crashes and suicide, not play. In fact, children are more likely to need medical attention for an injury resulting from organized sports than suffering a lifelong, you're going to die. It's amazing how many parents, when they hear this, it's kind of like giving them permission to say, you are now free to let your child roam about the playground and figure out who they are and to learn all those valuable lessons that you weren't getting ahead of time. But meanwhile... Totalitarian leftists here in the United States are saying, well, now wait a minute, we can't have that kind of play because roughhousing is toxic masculinity. And if a girl starts showing that kind of behavior, then we have to alter her body and make her into a boy because, well, it's okay if she becomes a boy after being a girl, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So how can playing on the schoolyard for your children or your grandchildren help us understand a little bit more about the role of gender as God sees it and gender confusion as the world seemingly wants it to be. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Here at K-Bright, we are proud to recommend Stephanie and Jim Cover of Cover Law because they take such good care of their clients. I was coming home. It was like two days before Christmas and I was sitting at a bottom of a hill and somebody just came smashing into me. Like, they didn't even break or anything. They were coming down a steep hill. The people that hit me had no insurance, no license, no proof of anything. I had a lot going on in my life at the at the time. I was busy at work. I was doing a lot of overtime. My husband came down with cancer. That was really a hard point in my life for my husband and I. She was by my side trying to help me through the accident and giving me personal support and telling me to keep the faith. And I was all ready, like, to, you know, throw in the towel. And she she just kept me going. They're just hardworking people. They know their stuff. They're very educated. They make you feel comfortable. They stick with you all the way. I used them as attorneys. Now they're friends. And once in a while, I tease them. Do I need to get in trouble so I could retain you guys? (laughs) I'd do anything to help those guys. I highly recommend them. I mean, I haven't had need for an attorney before, and I fell into the right hands. In the event of an accident, call Cover Law right away, 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. I feel like going outside and you know getting on this 
swing set or the teeter-totter or something like that. Great study published by fatherly.com about the encouragement for risky type of play, risky so-called, where there is a slight uh, possibility you might wind up, uh, you know, getting a skinned knee or a bruised elbow or jammed finger. I say that as I'm looking at one of the fingers on my left hand that I caught in a door the other day and it got a little, you know, the nails buckling up and said, how many times did you do that when you were a kid, right? Well, this new study, which we'll put up at thebottomlineshow.com, I think is key to helping us as grandparents, especially when you've got your grandkids with you, as much as you are physically able to do. If they're younger, do something physical. Get out for a walk, take them to the park, do whatever you can. Throw the baseball around or the Frisbee, something. But what you want to encourage your grandkids to do is to learn risk assessment first and foremost. And this is not a masculine or feminine exclusive thing. Though I must admit, I see a lot more in the culture that's encouraging girls to be more assertive than boys. And so my, I, I, I lean a little heavier toward if you've got grandsons especially, uh, or if you've got sons, but I mean, I realize a lot, most of our listening audience falls in the grandparent care category. That is the way to go. It, we, we honor God and what, who he created us to be when we engage in that type of behavior, because ultimately we believe that unless you're doing something really reckless, hey, Johnny, go play on the freeway. We, we were not encouraging that. But take the risk. Try to launch from the swing set. Take the extra rung of steps up and go down the higher part of the ladder. Whatever you can encourage your grandkids and kids to do, I encourage you to do so. We'll put a study, the art link for this study up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, recently, there was a conversation had by a couple of theologians uh, who took a look at scripture and realized that a lot of many uh, Christian men and women in the culture today are carrying a pretty heavy burden when it comes to how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's because so much of the teaching on gender relations and roles and rules kind of takes us more toward the cultural, this is what we've always taught, versus the biblical, this is what God has to say about it. Um, Elise Fitzpatrick has been a regular contributor to The Bottom Line for many years. She's a delight to uh, spend time talking with, and she partnered with Pastor Eric Schumacher on a book that came out earlier this year called Jesus and Gender, Living as Sisters and Brothers in Christ. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we actually have a copy to give away as well. Um, as we continue, Elise and Eric are going to join me, and we're going to have a great conversation about how the example of Jesus and the way he handled himself but also treated other people gives us the perfect blueprint for how we can live our lives as men and women of Christ, how we can relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're talking vocation, we're talking marriage, parenting, friendships, all sorts of different areas. Real-life testimonies in this book, too, from people like Christine Kane, who's a, a, a bottom-line contributor, uh, basically sharing their stories, just saying, hey, once I really got into what Scripture has to say about biblical masculinity or femininity, it just it was life-changing, and it set them free. Elise Fitzpatrick, Eric Schumacher, the co-authors of the new book, Jesus and Gender, Living as Sisters and Brothers in Christ. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we'll be giving away a copy at the end of the broadcast today, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break and come back with Elise and Eric next as The Bottom Line continues. 
There's been a lot of discussion recently about value and empowering and and, and what it really means to be a man or woman of God. Uh, How do we celebrate the true value of who human beings are? Well, there's a new book that focuses on one of the genders, and that would be women. Uh, The book is called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, a uh, co-collaborative project between uh, featuring authors Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. Elise is a nationally sought-after speaker and author, uh, has a certificate in biblical counseling from CC. CEF in San Diego, and also a master's degree from Trinity Theological Seminary. She's been a, a guest here on The Bottom Line Show uh, many times, uh, author of many books. Also, Eric Schumacher, a pastor, songwriter, and author, uh, is, has a bachelor's in communications and is MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. They are the co-authors of this brand new book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, which is just now out, and we've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. That was a huge introduction. Elise Fitzpatrick and <laughs> Eric Schumacher, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thanks. Thanks, Good to be here. Okay, so with Elise giving us a, a, a West Coast feel and Eric giving us the uh, the Midwestern vibe on this, uh, this is it's interesting that this concept of having a book about the value of women uh, has a male and female co-author. And I'll put this out. To, well, actually, ladies first. Elise Fitzpatrick. Why do you think the perspective of having Eric being a co-author here as a guy? Why is it so important for a book like this? Well, I, I could make I could make a smart alecky remark and say men won't read it unless the man sings <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> Truth, but, mm-hmm. uh, but also because Eric's bringing to the table the perspective of a man who has been a pastor for a long time and who has sorted through issues about women and in his congregation and. Um, so it's been really great working with Eric. I'm really glad, and I didn't just work with him because I wanted guys to buy the book. No, I, I didn't think so, but that is kind of a great way to get our attention. Eric, what about you? Why, why do you think it's so important to have the two of you guys working together on this? Uh, well, because men won't read the book unless there's a man's name on the cover. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, um, I'm hearing back from a lot of women who have said, it's so helpful to hear a man and a pastor say these things. Mm. Yeah, that, that, it's got to be key, because it isn't a topic that comes up in the pulpit all that often, and yet when we get right down to it, if you look at the Genesis story, you know, God created man, said it was good, then said it's not good for man to be alone, then we bring women into the conversation. Um, Eric, I'll start with you. What, what, what is it about the relationship of the worthiness of women that God created man and said, I'm also going to create woman as well. How could this statement be interpreted properly, and how do we get it wrong in the Church? Uh, well, uh, you know, the Lord says, like you mentioned, it's, it's an absolutely not good. Uh, it's a bad thing for the man to be alone. And, you know, when you think about a helper, the, the existence of a helper only implies a deficiency in the one that needs to be helped. And so uh, we as men need women. They're a vital partnership. And sometimes I think um, we can tend to think of them as an add-on or something that's nice, but not something that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, I think just to see that God has put them there, women in our lives and in our churches for a purpose and gifted them, and we can't really rule the world uh, or expand the kingdom as God intended uh, without women being equal partners. 
Eric Schumacher is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, along with Elise Fitzpatrick. They are the co-authors of a brand-new book called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, and we've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Elise, uh, I, I often point out to people when they talk about the radical nature of Jesus and his ministry, I say, well, if you want to look at one area where Jesus really uh, raised the stakes, uh, maybe not to, to change the course, but just kind of get us back on track, it's the way he treated women, the way he showed respect to women, they were included in the ministry as well. Talk about what Jesus can teach us about the value of women that you see from a woman's perspective that the Church doesn't always see and teach. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. If you look at Jesus' relationship with women, he had so many women that loved him, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and he was the sort of a man that a woman could be around and not feel threatened or intimidated or put down or dis- discounted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he drew to himself women who, a lot of them, had very difficult lives. I mean, think about the woman who was uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Mm-hmm. He he made an appointment, basically, in eternity to visit with this poor woman and to talk with her, with, with her and to reveal himself. He, she is the first person he ever says that he's the Messiah to. Mm, he reveals it that. He reveals that to her. But what's really telling is the attitude of the disciples when they get back from buying lunch, they, the Bible says, that they were shocked that he was talking to a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we, what we've got to do is really go back to Scripture, um, just read through the Gospels and start making a list of all of the women Jesus had relationships with and how they loved him and he loved them in return. And, of course, the first person to witness the resurrection was a woman, mm-hmm. the first person who is... Um, commissioned to go and talk to the apostles. Actually, I think Calvin calls Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. Mm-hmm. She's the first one sent with the good news about the resurrection. So, you know, we need to start looking at how Jesus treated women, and actually not just how Jesus treated women, but actually how Paul treated them as well. Mm-hmm. Elise Fitzpatrick is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, along with Eric Schumacher. They are the co-authors of this brand-new book called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, Eric, turn this attention over to you, because uh, now because of what Elise has said about the, the role that Jesus played, uh, you know, in terms of elevating women to a status that in, their, in that culture it didn't, really, it didn't really matter much, you know, what a woman did as long as she was married to a man. I mean, that's where she got a lot of her value. Um, there are a lot of women I'm sure that you've talked to uh, in your pastoral ministry that said, uh, Pastor Eric, I got a problem here. I don't feel like I, I feel like I'm kind of invisible here right now in my church. Um, you've got a word for, for women in, in the church that I know you want to share. What is it that you want women to know, and what can we guys learn from what you're about to share from here? Go yeah. easy on us, okay? Because a lot of times a lot of guys will say and do things just because that's the way they were taught without even thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was treating them wrong. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, first of all, I want women to know that they are valuable uh, because they've been created in the image of God, and that's where their value comes from first and foremost. In Christian women, uh, you've been redeemed by Christ, and you're covered with His righteousness, and your sins are forgiven, and you have uh, full the full value of Christ uh, 
is is reckoned to you. And so, uh, and God has called you, and He's gifted you for an essential role in the church. And uh, those gifts need to be used and seen and valued. And so, um, I, I want them to know that they have that value. And I, w- I would say to men, um, include women. And don't just include them as a token gesture, but include them as a necessary, that they, they have necessary gifts that you need to be ministered to by. And particularly to pastors, I would say and include women in conversations about what the church is doing and what needs to happen. Uh, ask them questions about what it's like to be a woman in the church, and then just listen. Uh, don't don't react, don't argue, uh, listen to what they say, and ask them clarifying questions, and you might be surprised at, at what you learn. Now, I'll push back just a little bit because I can hear someone listening to what you're saying right there and saying, okay, I get that, I understand that. And yet at the same time, when you read the Gospels, what you see is when Jesus formed his team in terms of leadership on the spiritual side. Yes, he had friendships with Mary and Martha. Yes, he had friendships with Mary Magdalene, but he called 12 men to be his disciples. When Judas you know, took his life, they brought in another guy. How do you reconcile the fact that even though Jesus elevated the status of women in the culture, when it came to the church and leadership roles, and we'll talk more about this on the other side of this break, but just to kind of whet our appetites here, how do you square with you know, the woman who says, I think I'm called to leadership, and somebody else says, yeah, but the first 12 apostles were men? Yeah. Well, well, I think. Or at least you want to jump in on this? Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'll just, I'll just really quickly say, and the first 12 guys were also Jewish. Mm-hmm. So are mm-hmm. we going to say, you know, a, a, a woman can't be, and I'm not, I'm certainly not um, uh, hoping for ordination of women. That's not what I'm looking at here. Mm-hmm. But, but that argument that Jesus only had uh, male apostles. Um, Jesus only had Jewish male apostles, so mm-hmm. are we going to use that same argument about women? Yeah, fair question. I, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, it's a great—it's kind of a Jewish way to answer it, too. Let's answer a question with another question, but it's a, good, it's a good response, at least. I really like it. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, more on this topic. Elise Fitzpatrick is with me today, along with Eric Schumacher. They are the co-authors of a really thought-provoking new book. I like this a lot. It's called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll talk about how they came up with that title, and also uh, get in a little bit deeper to some of the maybe controversies that are surrounding uh, women in leadership and, and the ways that the women's voices in the church right now, even today, here we are in the 21st century, modern era, and yet we're still dealing with these questions of where do women fit specifically in the church. We'll talk about that with authors Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher are my guests today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about a brand new book that they have just released called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we mentioned at the start of this conversation, Elise being from uh, San Diego and and uh, uh, Eric being from Iowa. How'd you guys get to working on this project together? How, did, have you known each other for a while or what happened? Uh, well, we uh, actually didn't meet in person until halfway through writing the book. I uh, I had tweeted out a string of um, instances, a string of tweets about women who were the first 
people in the Bible to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, a ministry called the Gospel Coalition asked me to turn it into an article. And Elise saw the article, invited me on her family's podcast, Front Porch with the Fitzes. And she said, you should write this as a book. And I said, you should write it with me. <laughs> and <laughs> and Elise, did you thing. like having this man telling you what to do? No, sorry, that's a different conversation. <laughs> Oh my! Yeah. Well, I, I love how the, the, this, the best ideas are often the simplest. I mean, it just started with a you know a simple statement of fact. Derek, doing your homework and saying, look, if you look at these different instances in Scripture, a lot of people don't look at them and realize that Jesus said, "Hey, this is the first woman here." And Elise, you mentioned something before the break. I want to circle back around to. Paul often gets painted with the well. This is the guy who says women should not have their heads uncovered in church and women should be quiet, et cetera, et cetera. But your research and your Bible study says. Hey, don't paint Paul with the brush that says he is somehow misogynistic here. I mean, talk about the role that Paul plays in terms of elevating women in the church. Yeah, um, it, it's very easy to to do a superficial reading of Paul and assume that he's misogynistic. Mm-hmm. When you look at the way he talked about women and the women who were in his ministry, um, he was not at all. For instance, in Romans 16, um He's commending his sister, Phoebe, who is a servant, actually, um, a deacon uh, of the church. And he sends Phoebe, a woman, she was probably single, she was a, uh, probably a businesswoman. Uh, he sends her on a mission to bring the most important letter that has ever been written in the history of the world, that might be Mm -hmm. hyperbole, but I don't think so, Mm -hmm. the book of Romans, to the churches in Rome. Now, it's easy to think about Phoebe, okay, she's just like, she's a letter carrier. Right. Actually, she was a lot more than that. Uh, She was entrusted with this document. She had to travel a a very far distance, and, and it was very dangerous for her to do so. But when she gets to Rome, it's generally assumed that she doesn't just take the letter and hand it off. What she does is she goes to the different house churches in Rome and reads the letter to them. There, So, you know, what is she doing? Not everyone in those churches were, were literate. And so people would have to read whatever documents were sent, and they would read them to uh, you know, the whole house church that was there. Mm-hmm. Some people even think that uh, she was so well acquainted with the contents of the letter and with what Paul meant by uh, when he wrote the letter that he could she could answer questions that they might have. Mm-hmm. Then also he says about her that she has been a benefactor or a, a, a patron of his. And in the Greco-Roman world, to be a patron meant that you provided for and protected people in your sphere of influence. And so what Paul is saying is about Phoebe, take care of her, assist her in any way she needs, Mm -hmm. because I have relied on her. She has helped me. So, you know, you've you've got Phoebe. Of course, you've got Paul talking about uh, Prista or Priscilla, who's married to Aquila and who teaches uh, Apollos the way of God more accurately. And then one other woman I want to talk about very quickly is Lydia. Lydia uh, was a businesswoman. She sold purple goods, purple cloth, in the city of Philippi. Mm-hmm. And Paul is praying about a mission into Macedonia, 
And a Macedonian man, this is so key, a Macedonian man appears to him in his vision and says, come over and help us. Mm. Now, it's really interesting mm -hmm. because what God does is sends Paul to Philippi, and Paul meets a woman, see, uh, Lydia, who is, uh, God opens her heart to believe the gospel, but she's the help that Paul and the Macedonian man needs, which sends us right back to Genesis 3, where God says, I'm going to make a helper, and that word helper there means, uh, it's usually a word used of God, that he is our help and strength. It's not a, uh, a word that would diminish a woman at all. It's actually a word that means she's a necessary ally. Mm -hmm. So who's the necessary ally yeah. for Paul? And the Macedonian man who needs help is a woman, Lydia. She's the first baptized convert in all of Europe, and it is at her house that the first church in Europe is established. And it's amazing what happens. I'm saying this kind of chuckling to myself, but I'm sure you guys had the same reaction, Eric Schumacher and Elise Fitzpatrick. As we do our research, just study Scripture, read what's in the text, and, and take a look at it factually. Don't even try to get into the, you know, the exegesis and let's dig down to what the original context was. How much you find that we've missed in terms of how we present the gospel, how we present uh, the story of the early church, and, and, and you record a lot of this in your new book called Worthy, and I appreciate you doing it. Celebrating the Value of Women. we got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Eric, uh, Elise has been hogging the mic for a while here. Let me turn this over to you for just a moment. I'm teasing her. You know I'm teasing. Um, the title— in and of itself, when we hear worthy, you know, we think worthy is the lamb who was slain. You know, we always think about it in terms of God. Uh, why did you guys choose this title? Uh, did you have a hand in choosing this title for talking about women in Scripture? Yeah, the uh, the title, I think, was first suggested by the publisher, and, and my first response uh, was, well, only God's worthy. And uh, But as I thought about it, you know, we're, we're created as human beings with worth. We have value. Mm -hmm. And the way that uh, Scripture speaks of us, you know, in our sin, Romans 3, Paul says that we have all become unworthy. Uh, that implies we were worthy at one point. We had worth, and that's because we were created in the image of God. And our sin, our failure to image forth His worth, makes us unworthy of, uh, of of bearing his glory, of receiving spiritual blessings, of being in his presence, and what happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, as he as he lives the life we should have lived, and he bears our sin on the cross, and he's raised from the dead, and by trusting in him, uh, we receive his righteousness, and we're transformed into his image. And then you have the book of Hebrews saying things, you know, Hebrews 11, about these men and women of whom the world is not worthy, mm -hmm. and our worth is restored. And I, I think sometimes uh, women sort of take a back seat uh, to men in the world, and, and particularly in the church. And, you know, as you think about those tough things about who can be leaders and ordained to the pastorate and all that, we sometimes get the idea in the world that leadership means more value, and, and that's wrong. Uh, all human beings are created with uh, equal worth and value. And so, and, and likewise, the way that you honor 
and glorify a chef, so to, you know, for an example, is you go in and you enjoy the dishes that they create. Right. If I go to a restaurant and the chef comes out and says, uh, what do you think of me as a chef? And I say, you know, I think you're an absolutely wonderful chef. I've hated every dish that you've sent to the table. <laughs> yeah. But I think you're a great chef. Uh-huh. That, that makes no sense. And you, you can't honor the chef apart from honoring the chef's creation. Mm. And so it is with women. One of the ways that we glorify God is by celebrating how great women are. Well, when you take a look at the, the way this book is laid out and looking at a biblical examination of the value of women in God's economy from creation all the way up to present day uh, modern culture here in the 21st century, you're going to find a lot of value here. And this actually could make, I think, a wonderful Bible study or small group discussion uh, resource as well. Elise Fitzpatrick, Eric Schumacher, the book is called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Elise and Eric, thank you so much for collaborating on this conversation here too on the bottom line show really appreciate it thank you thank you great conversation with eric schumacher and elise fitzpatrick today here on the bottom line the book is called jesus and gender we've got a link for this book up at the bottom line show.com the subtitle living as sisters and brothers in christ we have a copy to give away right now your sister in christ Teresa, is standing by answering the phones and her brother in christ joel is uh, working the board 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line this is a great resource to use as a bible study uh, maybe for a couple's study. I see so often that there are uh, churches that will go out of their way to make sure that married couples or engaged couples have the How to Have a Perfect Marriage book and this, that, and the other thing. May I submit to you that this resource and this topic of conversation, I believe, is more important than the marriage books. Now, here's why I say that. Because the marriage books, first and foremost, are to help us have who are married have healthier biblical marriages, full stop. But the books like this one, I think, has helped understand the nature of God a bit more for one simple reason. And that is, well, God created us male and female. You can have a solid, happy, healthy, productive, fruitful biblical life without ever being married. I believe that marriage is a gift to some. Uh, for some people, it's certainly been a burden. I'm sure you, I have a, a family, extended family member who wrote a, a book about a, what she calls a life-saving divorce. Um, and, and we've had those conversations with people here on this program, too. If you were involved in a bum marriage, I, I, my heart goes out to you. And um, rest assured that there are lots of other people in your corner rooting for your recovery from it. But understanding our roles as brothers and sisters in Christ is huge, and understanding what Jesus says about gender, not about what the Southern Baptists or the Evangelical Lutherans or the Catholics or whatever say about it, but taking it straight from the source, having a biblical worldview is so very important. Got a copy of this book, Jesus and Gender. We might even have two. Of Jesus and gender, living is yeah. I think we do have two. Now, trees is holding. Okay, we got two. So we'll have two winners today. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher, the co-authors of the brand new book called Jesus and Gender: 
Living as Sisters and Brothers in Christ. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a couple copies right now. I love multiple winter days, don't you? 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. This is a, a helpful resource, and you know, it's, it's interesting how this has become a battleground in the culture. It's even become a battleground in the church. You find more and more people who are, are taking this issue on and saying, well, you know, the, the, this is the way we've taught it and it was wrong and now we've got the right way. May I submit to you, and I think this is kind of a little mini ABC here to wrap up this half hour of the program. May I submit to you just my personal thought on the issue of how do we go at something like this and quote unquote, want to get it right. I've talked to so many different authors, theologians, pastors over my 11 years of hosting the show and I've I've loved every minute of it. And I look forward to at least 11 more, (laughs) to be perfectly honest with you, as we uh, near the, uh, we're in the home stretch now, we're less than a month away from celebrating our 11th anniversary here at the Bottom Line Show. But one thing I have noticed, doesn't matter what the issue is, and there's something that, that really stays with me and almost haunts me to a certain extent. And that is when you meet people who are literally bent on getting to the core of an issue, which is admirable. But then I always think of the words of Scripture that remind me that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When it comes to an issue like this, like gender, and you see women who are part of a, a faith tradition, for example, that were held back because the traditions of the men were like, well, Paul says women aren't supposed to teach, so there's no Bible teaching here from women. You know, or, or men who dig in with their haunches, you know, going to fight this thing tooth and nail. It's the enemy, I tell you, and trying to ruin our church. I, if I may sub- subject, submit this as a suggestion for anyone trying to come to this type of reform, I'm always trying to get the temperature of, get the pulse reading on the person who is making the accusations, trying to solve the problem. And my question is not so much what's the solution, but what's your opinion of the solution? You know, you could look at same-sex attraction. You can look at male-female roles, all those things. And if your motive is, I need to win this argument so I can get into a position of power, I would encourage you to take a step back and say, this isn't about who's right. This is about what is right. And that's the bottom line on that. Uh, KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your afternoon and evening. Uh, You've got Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus awaiting you on the other side of this break. For those who remain on the network, this is one of my favorite stories to cover in the whole time we've done this program. Uh, I'm a big fan of contemporary Christian musician Warren Hamm. He's been doing the side work for a lot of different, a lot of your favorite albums, both Christian and mainstream for years and years. A couple weeks ago, he posted a link on his Facebook page. It said, hey, my son Robert's documentaries, it's out now. Click the link here. You can watch it. And I watched one of the most poignant and powerful and beautiful films I've ever seen. It's called Made with Melanie. It's about the Melanie K. Ham, who was a, uh, a crafter, if you will. She had a YouTube channel and a website. She was a DIY expert in her field and basically um, had garnered almost a million followers on social media, but she also... Uh, developed cancer, a very aggressive form of cancer near the kidneys that wound up taking her life and resulting in her ultimate healing in her mid-30s, leaving behind a husband, documentary filmmaker Robert Hamm, and their two children. 
Uh, Robert made a tribute to Melanie that is a beautifully done documentary called Made with Melanie. That was the name of her YouTube page. We've got a link for that up at thebottomlineshow.com. As a matter of fact, you can watch the entire movie uh, for free. I've asked Robert to join me on the other side of this break to talk about Melanie, to talk about his life, to talk about the movie itself. And we have a special opportunity. If you like to do crafty things, um, we've got a special opportunity for you to actually get one of Melanie's uh, classes. These are uh, uh, paid classes that she would teach online that are still available for purchase online. But we have one of those classes available uh, for one of our winners. So uh, stay with us through the break if you're staying with us on the network. On the other side of this break, Robert Hamm to talk about his powerful new movie called Made with Melanie. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Got a new movie project to talk to you about today here on the bottom line. And the director, the uh, the brain trust behind it, the guy who actually not only put it together but lived it, is with me. Uh, Robert Hamm is a filmmaker. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's a veteran. Uh, he's a great man of faith. And uh, he has made a movie as an homage to a tribute, if you will, to his wife, who was a social media superstar in what she did. And they have a very winsome and loving story that's told in the new documentary called Made with Melanie. We'll explain what that title means on the other side. Well, just as soon as we get to beat our guest first and foremost. So Robert Hamm, welcome to the Bottom Line Show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for that very generous introduction. And well, um, just always ready to talk about Melanie and her work and, and her life. Well, let's talk, let's talk about her life. I mean, first and foremost, you guys met and married relatively young, which is a kudos to you. Very commendable for the day and age where people say, we're going to date for 10 years and kind of drag this out. There was some, some spark that happened the minute you two met. You met at church, if I, as I understand correctly. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I, when I look back, I think there was a time, you know, we had young youthful love and we were kind of in the same, you know, Bible study groups and stuff. And, you know, I guess looking back, I kind of like to say it was love at first sight for me anyway. I don't know about mm -hmm. her. Maybe she says something differently, but um, <laughs> I pursued her for a little bit. And we were just, I was going to, you know, a small Christian college trying to figure out my film life and trying to get my life. And I always, I kind of had a, a direction of where I wanted to go. And I, and I met her and we're just like, let's, let's date for a couple of years and let's do this. And I ended up going to, I studied abroad in Israel for a few months that was my first time away from her for a long period of time and when i came home i'm like i think i think i'm ready to, to commit to you and, and we yeah. got married and uh we had a you know as the story is kind of in the in the film as well um it was a very uh loving relationship and obviously since we were married for so long you know you go through tumultuous times as well um but we we had a really 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 wonderful life together in about 84 minutes on film, you guys capture your meeting, marrying, love story, your career, her career, and then the cancer diagnosis. The movie's called Made with Melanie, directed by Robert Hamm. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com, and actually we'll link the entire movie there as well. Uh, Robert, let's talk about the, the significance of the title Made with Melanie, because when you had taken a career change, I mean, and that's a big career leap when you say, I want to be a filmmaker. No, I'm going to join the army. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a big jump, you know, to go into the military. Uh, God gave Melanie a gift, well, actually helped her develop a gift that uh, she didn't really realize she had. Yeah, you know, it's it's a challenging, you know, I had I had this call um, after 9-11 and it took me a few years till I graduated college and got married and kind of uh, started to uh, try to figure out what my life was. And I, I had the call to join the military. And fortunately, they had uh, combat videography uh, as, as the job. So that's what I Perfect. ran into. 
Perfect. And of course, Melanie was not entirely thrilled. It was not something that like <laughs> was on the radar previous to our marriage. It was something uh-huh. that I, I felt called to a couple of years in. And, you know, she was so gracious in going along with me on that, on that journey. But of course, when you're, when you join, you have so much time away from each other. I mean, you're spending, I'm spending, you know, almost a year in training and we didn't have a lot of time to, and so she had to fill her time with stuff and really discovered her world alone, you know, on her own because she was still young, had just graduated college and still trying to figure out her life. And so she very wisely and diligently uh, used her time um, to spend with our son that we had, we gave, you know, she gave birth to in Alaska while we were stationed up there. And all of her free time was building her skills and getting, getting her passion in line. And uh, that's kind of how it started. I love that. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I love that that story, how this kind of it was born of necessity, because when you spring this on her and we see this in the movie made with Melanie, it's kind of like, OK, what do I do? I'm a, now a kind of a uh, not a more widow necessarily, but my husband's going to be gone a long time. I'm with these other people. And I, I got a kick out of my friends who are Navy veterans and they were from the Midwest and they did not want to go to California for whatever reason. They had this just awful idea of what California was like. They used to pray every night, please don't send us to California. So when her husband was stationed in San Diego, they went to Miramar. They're like, no, God, why are you punishing us? So when we got to the part in Made with Melanie, where Melanie's saying, I told God anywhere but Alaska. And it's like, and then here you are in Anchorage. It's like, oh my goodness. I mean, God's God's sense of humor, but it launched a crafting career for her that started uh, a YouTube channel that now has nearly a million people subscribing. I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story here, Robert, but take us there because that there's a, a payoff here in the movie made with Melanie that it's bittersweet, but it's very poignant and powerful. Yeah. You know, it's when you look back at things in your life that are hard for, for myself, anyway, you, you do see how God can help navigate those things to good, you know, and uh, he did that a lot faithfully throughout our life, including moving to Alaska, which was not what, what, what she says was not her high point. She was a Southern California <laughs> girl born in yeah. Arizona, loves the heat, loves the warmth, loves the sun and the beach. And, uh, and I, call, I remember calling her for my school. I was training in uh, Maryland and I call her and I'm like, well, babe, they gave us my last, my last slot, which was Alaska. And she, she was not very thrilled. I'll just leave it. <laughs> and, uh, but we moved up there in the summer of 2008 and we gave, she gave birth to our son on September 11th, 2008, mm. which was kind of a meaningful, uh, 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 anniversary, obviously for me and our country, sure. but she was not thrilled to, to, to give birth. She was really hoping the 10th or the 12th, um, uh-huh. you know, but things don't always turn out the way. And I, and we were, my unit was preparing to go to Afghanistan. So we were going to leave in January of 2009. And so we were just, we got to Alaska and got connected into a really small, nice church. And we started making friends really quick. You kind of have to learn to like, we, we said speed dating friends, mm-hmm. you know, it's because we like yeah. want to like make, uh, friends for her when I leave and the and the winters in Alaska are really you know they're literally dark all day long and and so she just found friends and found a community of people who really like to create and make things with their with their hands and um you know I'm very I didn't put this in the film but it reminds me so much of 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 Proverbs 31 you know all mm. the different things that yeah. that it, it, it exhorts women and she was like she just like leaned into it 
I love it. I love it. Robert Hamm is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Documentary filmmaker, uh, the new documentary he's released recently, just within the last couple of weeks, is called Made with Melanie. It's a documentary tribute to his wife, Melanie, who was a crafter, uh, quilter, uh, had a great YouTube channel, and also had a very, very difficult journey, well, the whole family did, but Melanie in particular, with cancer. Uh, we have a link for the movie up at thebottomlineshow.com. Robert, tell us about what it was like for you. I, I, I realize I'm kind of jumping around and our listeners who watch the movie will get a clearer picture of what your love story was like. But after Alaska mercifully came a little bit warmer weather, but as her influence on social media began to grow, as you began to succeed in your career, uh, you were hit with a diagnosis that no young couple, no any couple wants to hear involving cancer. Talk about how that uh, impacted you guys. Yeah, well, the, the quick and short of it, as, as you'll see kind of in the film, because we get into the nitty gritty of it, is in, in the end of 2018, um, you know, she was just feeling her, her side and she felt something and she asked me and we we're like, oh, man, we got to go get this checked out. Yeah. And it, it ended up being a large tumor on her kidney. Within a week, we got it. Uh, we had great surgeons at Cedar sinai who really helped us. And they did a great job and they pulled it out and they, they did a biopsy and it came back benign, which is like, meaning that Praise it wasn't God. going to be malignant and spread and everything. But, but uh, so at that time, we didn't realize, we thought it was kind of, we were hoping and praying it was like one and done, right? Um, but in, so she was getting scans regularly. Every six months, she was getting new scans to keep it up. And so she got a scan in February of 2020, uh, you know, right about the time that COVID hit off and it was totally clear. So we're like, awesome. Uh, but by the end of the summer, she started to not feel well again. And she got another scan in August and everything had come back. Mm. And, uh, you know, this, this tumor type um, is a long term that may, took me forever to memorize, but it's epithelioid angiomyolipoma. It's a very rare form of sarcoma. Mm. And um, once it turned, you know, it was growth and, and we, there were spots coming up. There was no real path to um, uh, to complete healing, but we, but we just focused on trying to do what the doctor said. She stayed really healthy. We did the surgeries and, um, you know, it was like an up and down battle. You kind of just take it day to day yeah. and you don't really know what the next stage is going to be. And you just got to try to, for us, we were just trying to focus on loving each other, loving our kids, taking each step, um, you know, as, as they came. And um, yeah. it, it's it's marvelous. I mean, it really is beautiful. And I and my hats off to you as a filmmaker. I mean, I'm I'm not. I'm, I'm a film watcher. I'm definitely a film watcher, not a filmmaker. Um, when you watch this documentary, a lot of times when you see like the quote unquote home movie parts of it, they're a little rough. They're a little all over the place. But there's a lot of grace because well, that's sweet and it's sentimental. This movie is. I mean, if any documentary like this, more to come in just a moment as the bottom line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. I said, you've got an account right now that's one-dimensional. It's paying you 6% for the next three years, and that's the one dimension it has. I said, 4D money has four dimensions. It'll pay you 4 to 6% a year, but has three additional dimensions. Number one, it'll provide you with long-term care benefits. Number two, it'll provide you with permanent income benefits. And number three, it'll provide you with inflation benefits, all under the heading of 4D money. 
So when I explain these things to people, they say, well, you know, that sounds too good to be true. I said, I know, but we have got millions and millions of dollars of clients' money in these accounts, and it's in black and white. It's true. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Robert Hamm is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about the uh, tribute he made for his uh, late wife, Melanie. Uh, She is the uh, proprietor, was the proprietor of a YouTube channel that was highly successful in the crafting world called Made with Melanie. So that's the name of the feature documentary. We have a link for the movie up at thebottomlineshow.com to be shooting this while you're living this. I was just, I was blown away. How difficult was that for you, Robert? Or or did you kind of, did God get you into a zone as a filmmaker that says, okay, look, we have a subject here. We have a story here. And I have to try to, you know, balance my emotions with my craft because, I mean, you did a fantastic job. Thank you for that. Um, You know, I I take my filmmaking craft very, you know, uh, serious. When I got out of the military, I went to USC film school and got my master's there and I've worked really hard to, to do it. And of course, in my my ambition, my career ambitions, it was never my goal to have a film such as this be like a film that would would uh, you know would show what I'm my my skills or whatever. Um, it was, but it was, you know, with I've I pro, I've processed my whole life through a camera. I'll start with that. You yeah. know, when I was in high school, I made films about what I thought I was going through and same thing in high in college. And mm-hmm. it was a thing that I did in the military. It was how I processed the, 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 the nature of war um, and trying to honor the stories of the soldiers. And um, knowing that Mel was so public uh, through this whole process and knowing that my skill set and the way that I process things is by filming things we, we, we talked in a, uh, in a great deal of, uh, of allowing me to film her story. And mm-hmm. so she was so gracious to, to show that. But let me share one quick story. I started, so in the film, the, her main interview, we filmed like three days before her major surgery in 2020, after the tumors had come back. And I wanted mm-hmm. to sit and get her whole life story, right. which, is, which is what part of the film. I edited that and uh, her whole story, which was about 35 minutes up till January of 2021, which we thought we kind of had the tumors under control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I showed it to her for our anniversary. It was like my anniversary gift to her and nobody had ever seen this version. Wow. Um, and it was just me and her and we cried through it and she watched it and she said, this is like this, you know, it made her feel good about her, her career and what she wanted to sh- show. Mm-hmm. And of course uh, we didn't know what else was going to, what the future was going to look like. But sure. I, I told her, I'd like to film as much as I can of this. And who knows if we're going to share some of it, what, what are we going to do? But I just filmed everything on my mm-hmm. iPhone, which is like, you know, phone, it's a great quality camera right in my pocket. It is. Yes. I used to have to carry around these big cameras with tapes and everything. Right. And right. Like, and, uh, and she said, that's fine. And uh, so as the year kind of progressed, we realized what this was kind of turning into, which is like this tragic, you know, train wreck of a health situation and um i think it kind of helped me it distracted me sometimes in a good way it made me focus on the moments and just be like present because like this is a moment i want to capture that shows a a a beautiful aspect of our life together 
even though it's it's tragic and particularly tragic on the outside looking in but mm -hmm. when you kind of are looking towards a countdown of life for us it was just like let's just be present and love on each other and be here and know that we want to share this with others um and she had she gave me an immense amount of trust uh to that she i don't think there was ever a doubt in her mind that that i would try to get her story right mm -hmm. Robert Hamm is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about the uh, tribute he made for his uh, late wife, Melanie. Uh, she is the uh, proprietor, was the proprietor of a YouTube channel that was highly successful in the crafting world called Made with Melanie. So that's the name of the feature documentary. We have a link for the movie up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Robert, it must have been, uh, well, I, I, I don't want to tell you how to feel. I'll, I'll <laughs> go back into this, but as you watch the finished product and now see the people's reactions to it, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people on YouTube have seen this movie already. I'm sure you're getting a lot of feedback from it. What's the most common expression that you're hearing from people other than people like me just gushing over how beautiful it was and how heart-wrenching it was, but what, what, what types of comments are you getting from people about this film? You know, my, my desire going into it um, and it, it was hard because I'm a major role in it, right? I'm making it, my interviews in it, I'm all over it. And it, it, it was really hard for me to kind of like, I wanted to pare me down. <laughs> I wanted this to be yeah. about her story and her sure. journey. And I actually had to hire a, an ed a co-editor of mine who's a deep friend of mine who we actually met in Alaska. Uh, and I said, man, you need to take out as much of me as possible because <laughs> <laughs> I, I want this to be about her and her yeah. story because yeah. she was a marvelous, wonderful woman. Um, mm -hmm. And she was loving and she was caring and she was talented and she was ambitious and she took care of me and my kids. And uh, I want other people to know. And I, I think, I hope that that resonates with a lot of other people who have lost, has, have lost somebody and, and want to remember them as well. And that yeah. they could, they could uh, cathartically relate to this, to this story. Um, I mean, that was kind of, I guess that, if that answers your question, I mean, that's, yeah. that was the main goal is I wanted to be about her and, uh, and the comments have reflected that the comments yeah. seem to be, this is a good, this is an amazing picture of who, of who Melanie was, who we thought she was from no, from getting to kind of know her, mm -hmm. uh, through the internet. Uh, and, and, and I'll say one other thing, I think it was really important to me that the family signed off on this film. Yeah. Um, they were part, as you'll see in the film, they were part of this journey all the way. Uh, you know, her mom and dad got divorced very young uh, when she was very young um, and they both got remarried. And we've all uh, of the, the six grandparents. So my, my mom and dad mm -hmm. and her parents and their, and their, uh, and, and both of their spouses have been so crucial to this journey. They've been so uh, a big loving part to help me, to help, to help Mel. And so it was important that they saw it, that they got to give me some feedback, that they got to add a couple things that they wanted and that they all approved of it. Because this is this was a journey that like, I don't own Melanie's story. It's right. like she's a part of so many people's lives. And I was hoping that that would be best reflected in the film. And it seems like it has been. Made with Melanie, a tribute to Melanie Ham. I'm talking with her husband, Robert Ham, today here on The Bottom Line, who's the director, writer, star, editor, and co-editor of this project. Um, talk about her legacy now. I mean, it's, it's been, it hasn't been a year since she's went home to be with the Lord. Is the Made with Melanie site still thriving? I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of archive material that people are still benefiting from. You know, it's not like it's, she had to be live you know, and doing new videos every week to still have an impact on people. 
Yeah, we're 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 keeping everything of hers um, alive. Uh, she has a her her blog is melaniekham.com. Um, she had a, a very robust blog. Actually, there's a there's a, a, a blog post about the film on there as well. She also has her paid for classes that are on there. Um, she did a whole bunch of you know uh, classes that were that were paid only that are not on YouTube that are got, get more into the in depth about the crocheting and the quilting, um, and of course her YouTube channel will stay live and she has hundreds of videos on there dating all the way back to when she started. Um, she has a very robust Instagram and all of these things and uh, her her mom and and uh, her stepmom uh, uh, have been helping me kind of. Because we, you know, the big thing is for us, we're, we're trying to figure out what is the right way to continue her legacy? What is right. not, what's not cynical? What's like honoring to her and, and to God and our family through this? And, and we're still trying to figure that out. What we do know is everything will stay up, uh, that people can engage. And I'm hoping that this film uh, kind of reinvigorates people in, into her story. They go, now they could kind of go back and look at her stuff, continue to learn from her mm -hmm. yeah. as if she was, as if she was still here because her legacy still lives. And mm -hmm. it's a, it's a credit to who she was and how she ran her business. And, and yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's wonderful. The internet's definitely forever. And every time I look at something and say, ah, I've never seen this before. And look at the timestamp and it says 2014. I'm like, well, okay. That's a, I wasn't paying attention when it first came out, but it's a benefit to me now. We only have a couple minutes left in our conversation with Robert Hamm, a documentary filmmaker par excellence. Robert, what, what is that? I mean, this has been such a gut-wrenching journey for you and for the kids over the past couple of years. And then to have this beautiful product that's come out of it, uh, this blessing other people, as mentioned, hundreds of thousands have seen this movie so far. What's on the horizon for you? I mean, are you and the kids kind of uh, regrouping and healing up a little bit, or does God have projects for you to keep working on right now? Yeah, you know, this has been a uh, interesting journey to kind of put my uh, life and our kids' life and my wife's life in such a vulnerable way to the public. Um, and so I think there's still a lot of surprises that God has for us in the future. Right now, it's like, get the kids back to school and get right. all the things ready and, and get, you know, try to close down summer and see what is next for our life. We're kind of still in this grief process that just takes a lot of time, it seems like, and um, just trying to focus on doing the next right thing, taking it day to day. Yeah. Uh, as far as my film projects, I have um, a film about uh, Afghan interpreters that I'm almost done with, another oh, nice. feature documentary nice. uh, about my interpreters that I, that I had met and befriended in Afghanistan and their journey to get to America. Uh, kind of tells the history of the Afghan kind of conflict back to even pre-80s through the eyes of interpreters uh, to, through Afghans who lived there. Um, and so that one, and I, you know, I always have projects going on, but, uh, but you know, I, I think part of, it's been interesting to use this film as not only a grieving process for myself and for my kids, because I sat and watched it with them. I made sure that they were okay with everything that we're putting out there and right. they loved it. Um, and they yes. also cried through the whole thing. And it was <laughs> kind of really like a therapeutic, yeah, it was like a therapeutic, yeah. but I'm also realizing how therapeutic this has been for our, the, our extended family and so many of the people who loved her. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. 
I think that's wonderful. Well, I, I, you talked about the extended family support, and I first was made aware of this because I, I'm a groupie for your dad. Uh, Robert, Robert's dad, Warren Ham, is a sideman par excellence and is playing with Toto right now and traveling all over the world. But I remember his Christian music days back in the 80s, great uh, man of faith. And when he posted on Facebook, he said, hey, Robert's film's done. You got to watch this. I went, okay. I didn't know that he had a son. And I clicked on the link and I watched it and I wept and I reached out to you on Facebook and said, hi, you don't know me, but I would love to have you on the program. I don't typically do that here, but uh, for this one, I, I felt it was well worth it. And I'm really grateful that we made the connection. And I pray that uh, uh, God continues to bless you and your ministry, Robert, as you, as you go through a grieving process that's healthy, but also to see what God has in store, because this is not the kind of ministry anybody really wants, but it's amazing how God uses it. So God's richest blessings to you and the kids and your extended family from all of us here at the Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate you having me today. And anytime I could talk about Melanie and her legacy, I, I will be there. By the way, where do we find you online? Uh, I have my own website for my production company that she and I created together. It's called Hammer Productions without the E. So H-A-M-M-R Productions, an acronym of, uh, of M is for Melanie, R stands for Robert, and then Ham. Um, or you could, you know, you could Google me, Robert Ham. Uh, interestingly, I made during 2020 when I was unemployed, because a lot of film stuff went out of, uh, went, went low for a while. I made a documentary about my father and his career. Okay. So that's on my YouTube channel. If you, if you YouTube Warren Ham, Robert Ham, uh, a film will come up. I think you particularly will find that interesting. Oh, absolutely. As soon as the show's over today, I'm, I'm right there. I'm absolutely yeah. right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're all on social media and everything. So, Great. uh, Yeah. We'll put the links up as well. Robert, thank you so much for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Such a beautiful story. And I encourage you, you can watch the film for free at thebottomlineshow.com, rogermarsh.com, myhopenow.com. We'll have links all there. Uh, Robert mentioned that uh, he's got one of these courses that Melanie offers at her website, melaniekham.com. And we've got one to give away right now. It's a free craft, craft class. Uh, there's ordinarily a cost involved in this one, but we've got a free one uh, if you would like it. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Robert Ham. What a delight to get to know this young man. Um, and having watched his dad's music for so many years, and as I mentioned, uh, Warren Ham's uh, sax playing, singing, songwriting, has had a huge influence on my faith. Uh, now his son's filmmaking has had an even bigger one. Uh, the movie Made with Melanie is a tribute to his late, white Mel late wife, Melanie Ham, who was a crafter, a quilter, had 855,000 subscribers on her YouTube channel watching how to make crochets and quilts and things like that. We have a link for the whole movie, up at thebottomlineshow.com. You can find it on YouTube if you want to, but we'll put it at thebottomlineshow.com and at rogermarsh.com. But we also have one of Melody, Melanie's classes. And these are classes, she did some free things online, but then she also had a lot of people who followed her and subscribed to her coursework. And um, we've got one of those free classes that we're giving away right now at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Three things we learned from the ministry and the life and legacy of Robert Ham and his wife, Melanie K. Ham. First one is you don't get to pick your ministry. You really don't. As much as we like to prepare and train for ministries, uh, Melanie's ministry of crafting was born out of being in isolation in Alaska while her husband was stationed overseas. Robert's ministry career, as far as a filmmaker, has been outstanding up to this point, but this one's taking him way farther, and it's a story of chronicling the final days of his wife's life here on Earth. 
Uh, the second thing, quite frankly, is eat whatever God puts on your plate every day, even if it tastes a little bitter. It was no fun to have to get these shots, get the film, put it together, but God spoke and Robert was obedient. And then the third thing to always remember is the fact that whether we live or whether we die, we live as under the Lord, we die as under the Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So as Melanie battled her cancer and Robert battled along with her, they did so knowing that if she received her ultimate healing and she was no longer here, well done, good and faithful servant was waiting on the other side. So either way, we don't have to fear death and terminal illness because we know how the story is going to end either with a healing that continues here on earth as I've been experiencing for the past four and a half years or one that welcomes you into the arms of the Savior. So either way, you win. And that's the bottom line.